Hello and welcome to the 2022 Tech Congress series. My name is Adriana and this series will feature civic technology experts doing transformative work in the civic tech space. A little bit of background. Tech Congress is a nonpartisan organization that places computer scientists, engineers, and other technologists to serve as technology policy advisors to members of Congress through our Congressional Innovation Fellowships. We work with Congress to expand the voice of civic tech experts during the policymaking process. Today, we'll be spotlighting Dr. Saif Savage. Dr. Savage is currently an assistant professor at Northeastern University, where she directs her civic AI lab. Her research in AI has led to her being recognized as one of the globally most impactful AI research by UNESCO and was named one of the 35 innovators under 35 by the MIT Tech Review. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Savage. We're so glad to have you. Thank you very much. It's such a great honor to be here. Yeah. So could I ask you, where did you grow up and how did this influence your interest in tech, AI and government? Yes. So I grew up in Mexico City. And living in Mexico City was a really great experience because on one hand, it allowed me to understand that a lot of people do not have access, quick access to technology. And so therefore, it's important to also think about how do you engage citizens who have limited connectivity? How do you engage citizens who many times don't even have the privilege of being able to have free time in their everyday lives? Um, and so a lot of the technology that I'm creating is focused on workers and thinking about how do we empower workers to be able to reach better futures? Also, how do we involve governments in order to create better policy for the workers. When I was growing up in Mexico City, uh, we were living a time where uh, we had this huge presidential election. And one of the candidates alleged that there was fraud in the election. And so that was one of the first times that I also went off into the street and was protesting around uh, this alleged fraud. That experience was very useful for understanding how different actors were able to mobilize action. Um, this political candidate, who is actually now the current president of Mexico, was able to mobilize a large number of people for his cause, even though he had the opposition of the media. And so this event made me very interested in thinking about how do we empower more actors to be able to recruit people into the different causes that they have. And also being involved in this also helped me to see as well how certain actors as well are manipulating many times citizens in order to get them to participate in their cause. And so I also started to get an interest in helping people to understand how they might be manipulated by different actors. And so a lot of my research focuses on designing collective action tools for citizens to mobilize others, and then also for citizens to be able to visualize when they're being manipulated by certain actors. That's really fascinating, honestly, like hearing about your backstory growing up in Mexico City. So I wanted to keep up with that question and ask you, what made you interested in pursuing your further doctorate degree at UC Santa Barbara? How did your studies during this time influence your career post-grad? So I originally studied my undergraduate degree at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, UNAM. And there I studied computer engineering. So I come from a very pure technical background. 
I was able to go to the University of California, Santa Barbara as an undergraduate for a year um, because they had an exchange program. And that really helped me to love the University of California um, and want to do research with them, particularly in the area of human computer interaction and machine learning. I went there and I started studying different intelligent interfaces with my advisor. While I was there, one of the key things that started to happen was that I realized that I was in a complete position of privilege because I had access to some of the best knowledge in the world. I had access also, I was also able to have a lot of time in order to be able to develop technology and study it. And then I started to feel a little bit bad because I was also seeing a lot of the problems that Mexico was going through. Uh, for instance, during this time, uh, the drug cartels were increasing in violence and I felt as a person that was just living in privilege and not doing anything for my society. Um, and so some of the things that I started to do when I was there as part of my PhD was on one hand, understand how citizens were getting together in order to fight the drug cartels, how they were also many times even opposing the government who allegedly, the Mexican government who was allegedly teamed up and was helping the drug cartels in, in, in some cases. I was interested in understanding how citizens were coming together to fight these, uh, these difficult situations. And so I started to do large scale data analysis on how these citizens were conducting collective action. And I started to publish research on these uh, citizens that were operating on different Facebook groups. And that was actually one of my uh, first author papers at a top conference around uh, these these citizens who were using social media, particularly Facebook groups, to report the violence in their cities and then produce collective action to fight the drug cartels. Based on that research, I then started to think about, okay, that's great that I'm doing these types of data analysis, but what if we could do more? What if we could maybe create systems that computational systems that could help citizens now get together and actually start to uh, take better action uh, for their cities. And so I started to create a number of computational systems that facilitated collective action with citizens based on the research that I had found. Um, and it was uh, great because then uh, the BBC picked up on the research that I was doing on collective action for social media, and I got a lot of press coverage. And I was also able, and that, that was uh, one of the final research projects that I did during my PhD. And I was able to start as, as an assistant professor at West Virginia University. And at West Virginia University, I started to study more collective action systems, but also now focused on rural areas. And it was there at that time that I got connected with Mexico's federal government. And I started doing a series of collaborations around designing now GovTech. So a lot of the research that I had been doing on my own, I was now collaborating with government actors to see how we could best collaborate and start to deploy these systems at scale. Wow, that's really fascinating work that you've been doing, honestly. And speaking about working with government and working with NGOs, I know that you've worked with a variety of universities and these non-governmental organizations, including the Atlantic Council, Carnegie Mellon University. So what has working in these sectors taught you about the power of technology on underrepresented communities? 
technology i think can on one hand empower but it can also be dangerous because it can be used to silence certain groups and it can also be used to empower actors that you would not want them to have certain powers. Um, and so in my research, I have been studying how we can design tools for rural workers, especially workers who have been, for instance, displaced uh, by technology. And now I'm designing uh, technology for them to be able to access new types of jobs, new types of opportunities. However, within my research, I have also realized that many times technology can also be weaponized by certain actors and used to manipulate and harm other people. As, as, as I mentioned with how I started in, in this area, I think it's critical that we understand that technology can be used to give voice and power to certain groups, but it's also important to think about how do you ensure that certain bad actors are not weaponizing your technology. Um, and so it is important to think about the two sides that technology can have. And with respect to rural workers, I think it's also very important to identify that there's a lot of opportunity in designing for regions that have been traditionally forgotten, such as rural areas. Why is it important to design for uh, those th those regions? If you're an entrepreneur, a lot of people are not designing for them. And so you have the opportunity to create new types of innovations for these areas. And I think that's it's also a very enriching opportunity where you're, you're creating real world change uh, within these areas. Yeah, and the impact that technology has on these groups is like you said, it could be a double edged sword. And so I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about the Northeastern Civic AI Lab. Could you tell us more about it, how it formed, and what is human-centered technology? So I was working at West Virginia University for a couple of years. Uh, then I actually moved into industry where I was working at Microsoft. And then I decided I wanted to go back into academia and I went back into Northeastern. So Northeastern University is hiring me as now a person who has been in industry, for instance, working in big tech, and as well as working with rural workers. Our lab is very much focused on designing technologies that can empower people who have been traditionally forgotten, for example, the workers. And we're empowering them to reach their different goals. However, we also argue that in order to empower workers to reach their different goals, we need to include the different stakeholders, such as government actors, NGOs. And so our interfaces are connecting with these different actors in order to produce better collaborations and create better societies for everyone. Our research team is conformed of PhD students, master's students, undergraduate students, but we also have research collaborators who can be working in governments, who can be working in NGOs, and we aim to create, on one hand, research that is published in top conferences and journals, but also research that can resonate and produce real world change. And so that's why we have a, a number of collaborations with real world government actors, NGOs, in order to ensure that our research is not just for an ivory tower, but rather it's actually having an impact for people. Yeah, and that's spectacular work that you guys are doing there. And I wanted to ask you, I was curious, what has been like the favorite project that you've worked on? 
One of my favorite projects has been our research on invisible labor, which focuses on being able to quantify the amount of work that workers, digital workers are doing, but also being able to quantify the work for which they're not being paid. This research is exciting for me because we have been able to show that a large number of worker digital workers are being paid less than the minimum wage and then i've been able to connect with government actors policymakers in order to get them to start to create different policies for these digital labor platforms that can ensure fairer work conditions for workers. I think that it's crucial that we empower workers to have their own data about their workplace. And this helps in being able to audit what is happening inside digital labor markets, because there's a lot that's going on. And right now, the digital labor markets are a black box. And the problem is that workers are the ones who are experiencing bad labor conditions and so it's it's important that we provide transparency to their labor conditions and we also help policymakers to be able to see under the hood around what is going on so that they can take action and they can help workers through the creation of better laws wow that is a really interesting project that you've been working on and so I know that you have been very involved in uh, civic tech for a while now, as you had previously talked about working in Mexico, coming here to the U.S. So I wanted to ask you, how has the definition of human-centered technology evolved over time? So human-centered technology is all about understanding the needs of humans, of people, and then based on those needs, starting to design technology for people. And a lot of the times you can understand people's needs through interviews and surveys, and then you start to create technology that is tailored for people. Some of the things that I've learned along the way while I've been in this trajectory is that you do need different methods for different populations. And so for instance, when I was working with the rural workers, I realized that a lot of the tool sets that I had for conducting interviews, doing research with people and for people had to change drastically when I was working with rural workers. Why? Because rural workers have very different needs. Uh, for instance, many times you will wait until you finish a research paper in order to give people, for instance, certain benefits for participating in the research. I realized that with rural workers, it was crucial that we gave them immediate benefits. Why? Because they didn't even have the bandwidth to participate in research, given that they were living many times day to day. And so it was important that we created opportunities for them immediately. Similarly, working with governments, I also realized that you also need to find new ways of doing research. Uh, because if you follow the typical research cycle, it's going to be hard for you to engage these government actors to work with you. And so it's finding ways in which you can provide a win-win for all of the stakeholders that are involved so that you can have better outcomes. I've been recently connecting with the methodology of value-sensitive design, which focuses on understanding what are the needs and values of the different stakeholders, and then using that to design better technology and have better ways of engaging and working with the different stakeholders so that you can create a win-win situation for everyone. That's super interesting how you have to change like the way that you research things based off the population. I find that fascinating. 
And so expanding on your work at the Northeastern Civic AI Lab, I wanted to ask, what are some ways that students have already engaged in civic technology and how can we encourage students to further involve themselves in the public service and technology? So we have been creating on one hand, uh, for instance, a national disinformation research cloud. And here we worked closely with the Federation of American Scientists to define how different stakeholders could start to study disinformation and share data around disinformation because currently it's primarily big tech who has access to large-scale data about disinformation and can study disinformation. And so we wanted to change this and we wanted to democratize the process. And so here we have, we have started to work with students to define this national disinformation cloud and also work with NATO, for instance, um, in order to get them to care about this type of uh, public infrastructure that we were building. Additionally, uh, students can also get involved. Uh, we've also looked at uh, for instance, Mexico recently created a digital agenda, uh, basically kind of laws related to um, how digital media was going to be regulated. Um, we've been working with different actors, uh, for instance, uh, different technology companies, different large tech technology companies, in order to analyze what does the what do these uh, what what does this bill mean? Is it good? Is it bad? And it's starting to generate conversations through which we can get to policymakers so that they can reconsider the type of bill that 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 they created uh, and especially coming from experts we've also worked for instance here with Georgetown's uh, university and uh, and, and we, we we worked with a workforce that involved federal judges also people from different universities and together we're helping to define what a bill for the United States around uh, social media look like, especially considering the different harms that can be involved with. And so I would say uh, if you're a student and you're interested in getting involved in these projects, please email me. And there are a number of different ways in which you can get involved in order to start to create technology or study technology and then engage different stakeholders, for instance, policymakers, federal governments, NGOs, in order to have change with the technology that you are creating and studying. That is some amazing work that you've been doing on combating political disinformation. And I wanted to ask you to expand on that. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about the role specifically of AI in combating political disinformation? Yes. One recent project that we have around AI and political disinformation revolves around the data of data voids. Data voids are when a particular topic is not discussed, uh, is, is hardly discussed on social media or in the media. And what we found was that political trolls were then weaponizing those data voids to share conspiracy theories, share disinformation, and it's there. they are then stories that are hard to verify because there's so little information about it. So we have been, been designing AI systems that can detect data voids inform journalists about them through interactive data visualizations and the journalists can then take action to cover the data voids and produce high quality content that can help in the fight against disinformation. Awesome, that is really interesting. I wanted to also ask you, what are some ways that AI is changing the role of how information and communication are delivered through the public sector? Some of the things to consider about how AI is being integrated into the public sector, uh, we've seen a number of ways in which AI is being integrated 
And we have actually been helping the public sector to integrate AI into its organizations. On one hand, we designed intelligent interfaces that help government workers in Mexico be able to provide better follow-up to victims of domestic violence. What, some of the things that we found was that victims of domestic violence, particularly in Mexico City, were able to go to government offices to report the violence that they were living, but then the government officials had a hard time providing follow-up to the victims. And so we created intelligent interfaces that helped the government workers be able to visualize which women were more likely to experience extreme violence so that they could jump in and provide them with assistance. Additionally, we were also helping the government workers to be able to take better care of themselves because many times the government workers would get exposed to cases of extreme violence, cases where women were even be in danger of being murdered. And the government workers were not taking enough breaks, were not taking enough self-care, and they were traumatized from having to work and listen to these extreme cases of violence. And so our AI systems are also detecting those cases and helping their coworkers to also provide them with better support so that the government workers themselves are, are, are not as stressed out in their jobs. And so this is an example of how AI can start to be integrated into the public sector, in this case, to help government workers provide better services to victims of domestic violence. We've also been working with UNESCO in terms of designing AI technologies and as well as NSF, uh, designing AI technologies that can help rural workers be able to develop their digital skills and access better jobs. Uh, one thing that we have found is that it's important to team up with public institutions such as public libraries. We're using, in this case, public libraries as spaces where workers can come in, use our tools, and start to develop their digital skills and access better jobs. It's important to find how you can connect with public institutions institutions in order to, I think, deploy a lot of the technology, a lot of the AI technology that you want. Wow, that is spectacular. And to think like how far we have come as a society in relying on technology, it's super important. It's fully ingrained and some people just don't really have access to that or it's just not made for humans. It's just not well made. So adding on to that, I wanted to ask, in your opinion, how do you see the future of AI in civic tech and government? So what does being a civic technologist mean to you as well? I think that for AI and civic tech in government to be able to succeed, it's very important on one hand to create new types of jobs and careers where you have public servants that are well-versed in the technology and that are also critical of the technology. Why? Many times, for instance, we're seeing cases of government officials wanting to implement, for instance, AI into everything that the government does, and they're not thinking about the dangers that AI can also bring into citizens. For instance, the biases that AI can have, the type of errors that AI can, can, can generate that can leave certain populations completely out of the equation and hurt them in terms of being able to access certain government services. And so I think that one critical thing that we need is the development of digital skills for government servers in order to be able to understand the technology and then be able to propose 
new types of technologies that can be used in government in a good way. And here, I think also that working in, in terms of human-centered design is going to be critical because human through human-centered design, we will be able to better understand the needs, the challenges that people face, and then design technology that can truly empower citizens instead of just simply displacing them. Wow, you are doing such amazing work. Thank you so much. And for the last question, it's more of a get to know you question. I just wanted to ask, what's your favorite food from your childhood? Oh, that's a great question. So I think that from my childhood, some of my favorite food is uh, tacos, definitely. So I'm from the south of Mexico. And I love these tacos that are called tacos al pastor. And also I would always have them with a mamey milkshake. Uh, mamey is like a special kind of fruit and it, they just tasted so delicious. So these tacos, which are like with a lot of meat and pineapple, and then this milkshake of mamey, it's delicious. I now I am a little bit vegan. So uh, the good news is that they do sell a, a type of vegan option for these tacos al pastor, which I highly recommend. And so tacos al pastor are very, very good. And these milkshakes of mamey are also delicious. Wow, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Savage. Thank you for having me. It was a true honor. Yes. So you're doing such important work and we can't wait to see the growth and continued impact of the Northeastern Civic AI Lab. That's it for now. Follow our Twitter at Tech Congress Fellows to learn more about opportunities in the civic tech space and look at more features of incredible civic technologists. 